0: what's up hello this is admin cubana coming back at you with another episode of the unladylike lounge podcast and today i am joined by the wonderful bethany bethany how are you today
1: so great and so happy to be here
0: awesome thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this huge elephant in the room i feel especially in today's society why don't i first give you the opportunity to brag on yourself hype yourself up let us know a little bit about yourself
1: Absolutely. So I'm an attorney by background and I work specifically in healthcare innovation and femtech. And for those who aren't familiar with the term, femtech really refers to just female health technology. And so a lot of the work I do is helping women's health innovators get their products to life faster so that we can drive revolutionary products and growth in women's healthcare. So, as part of that, I am the founder and CEO of Fem Innovation. And we're really seeking to drive women's health through education, uh, legal and business strategy advice, advocacy, um, and just spreading general health and wellness advice to the public.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. Let's jump right into the questions because you actually touched on my first one a little bit, but I want to go a little bit deeper if that's okay. Uh, my first question is: Let's talk femtech. It sounds great. <laughs> However, when I what I had never even heard the term until I came across your profile. So when I Google, you know, I always got to turn to Google for something. I don't know what it is. Some of the some of the results that pop up are a bit daunting, and it can it can look terrifying for for women. What is what exactly is femtech? Kind of more in depth. And is it something to be feared or is it something to be embraced by women?
1: It's a great question. So femtech is actually a relatively new industry, which is probably why you've not heard of it. Um, It was only coined in 2016. And you're probably wondering, why do we even have femtech? Like We don't have a corresponding men tech category. Why is this even out there? And so the reason that femtech really developed was because we had historically huge exclusion of women from the medical field, from clinical trials. Uh, Women weren't even allowed to participate in clinical trials until 1993. Even then, if we're still looking at data from 2010, 2016, sex is not being considered as a fundamental variable in clinical trials. So a lot of the data that we have on healthcare is based solely on male physiology that's then applied to women on kind of a one size fits all, you all are many men and the only difference is your reproductive organs. And that's, as, as we all know, right, not true. So FemTech oh. came into existence as a way to start empowering women to take charge of their healthcare and to allow them to actually understand their bodies without the shame and the stigma that's typically attached to women's healthcare discussions in public. So that's kind of the background on FemTech. Now as you mentioned right whenever you google femtech like a bunch of different things come up there's you know no universal definition of femtech for me i consider it to be something that's very broad any type of technology solution that's geared towards improving women's healthcare uh there's narrower and broader definitions out there the other thing when you look at femtech online kind of what you see is this is a new industry um and because of that, a lot of the products that are out there have focused to date on reproductive health care. And okay. so that's going to be things that you're seeing, like your period tracking apps, your ovulation apps, um, maternity apps coming onto the market. That's kind of what's dominated the market so far. Okay. But what we're starting to see, and Femtech passed its $1 billion funding mark in 2021. So we're getting out there, right? We're getting more attention. And that's allowing us to now shift into greater uh, verticals and industries within women's health. So like the big thing right now that you're probably hearing about is menopause. That's a new vertical that's coming out for for Femtech recently. Uh, But we're also starting to see transitions into chronic care and longevity um, and starting to see some, you know, more like cancers um, and those types of really difficult women's health issues to tackle. Those are now starting to come into the Femtech field as well. Gotcha. All right,
0: excellent, excellent.
1: Now you did mention like the period
0: tracker apps, things like that. Um, are those amongst the top current trends in
1: femtech? If not, what are the the top current trends? It's a great question, and so you know it's it. it... First of all, depends on where you're located, Um, you know, so if you're, for instance, in Asia, that market right now is a couple years behind the US so what you're going to see on that market is definitely going to be your period tracking apps and your fertility apps kind of dominating that landscape. If we look more at the U.S. and Europe, we have more funding um, and more discussions around women's health right now. We're sort of the leaders right now in the femtech industry. So the period tracking apps, the fertility apps, those are still a large part of the market. Um, I would say they very much do still dominate the market here. But we have investment interest and founder interest in expanding beyond that. So the most common things that you're probably going to be familiar with on the market will be things like Glow, Flow, Clue, right? Those kind of period yeah. tracking, ovulation tracking apps. Um, there's, you know, free versions of those types of apps out there. The reason that you're seeing kind of an influx of that and, and period tracking apps are like one of the top four most popular apps, especially amongst adolescents and young adult women. And the reason for that, to be honest, is they're very easy to get to market because they don't have a lot of review or oversight from the FDA. Um, And so there's not a lot of regulatory scrutiny of those types of applications. So they're very easy to get up and running, develop a prototype, get it to market quickly, start making some money. That's why those are kind of proliferating right now. The other really big thing right now, as I mentioned before, is menopause. That's been a huge trend that's coming onto the market. Um, It's getting a lot of attention, not only from celebrities, but also from investors who want to explore what happens to women after their reproductive health years. And that's kind of marked a, a really interesting shift, right? Because for so long, femtech has been limited to the reproductive health years, again, equating women's health with reproduction. Yet- women are going to spend 40, 50 years outside of their reproductive health years. And they've been neglected in those areas. So now we're finally starting to see what does that look like? What is it, you know, we can't ignore and discount women's experiences once they're no longer fertile. So that's really where the trend is going right now. Excellent. I love to hear that because as you
0: said, we, we never really had a focus on what happens next. And it's, I think that's kind of why the the at least where I'm from the topic of menopause is kind of taboo. It's hush hush. Nobody wants to talk yep. about it, and it's like, but we're so eager to talk about. Oh, when are you having kids? When are you doing this? When are you you know right. the, the reproductive part, but nobody wants to talk about what's next. And I I'm not quite there yet, but it's like I want to know. I want to know what's coming. So I absolutely love that. It's thank you for for shining the light on FemTech because when I like I said when I googled it I was oh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know how to feel. Let's talk now. I just want to put a disclaimer here for my audience members, because when we are in our, our normal safe space, that is our, our Facebook group, we don't go political. But mm-hmm. for the, the sake of this conversation, we're going to go a little bit political. We're going to talk Roe v. Wade, if you're, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. What do, you, what do you feel the future looks like for women of America who are denied legal access to abortions?
1: Yeah, this has been an incredibly important topic. Um, And, you know, and it's unfortunate, right? Because again, we're conflating women's health with something that can be controlled politically. Um, And and that's one of the most frustrating things about the discussion, right, is we're not thinking about women's health, we're thinking about how can we politicize this. And again, you know, as we've seen throughout history, control women's bodies for political means. Uh, And that's absolutely what's happening here, you know, and to be honest, we have seen such a patchwork of state laws come into play right now and a lot of overreaching. So for those who haven't necessarily kept pace, right? The Dobbs decision came in almost exactly a year ago a couple of days ago. Um came in right got rid of the federal right and protection to abortion. Since then, we have had numerous states enact laws or have their trigger laws, meaning laws that were already on the books but couldn't be implemented because Roe v. Wade was in existence, come into effect and substantially restrict abortion. Um, So we have a multitude of states right now, right, that prohibit abortion either entirely or at six weeks, you know, where most women don't even know they're pregnant or at some you know, 10, 12 week period afterwards. And that means that women in those states cannot get access to necessary reproductive health services. What we've also started to see because of that is women are more fearful to go to their doctors and even have these discussions, even when it's something that the woman may need because it could be life-threatening to her or the fetus isn't viable. So because of that, women are now more concerned about what data they share with their healthcare providers, what data they share with femtech applications, and that can have downstream consequences, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into that um, for sure. But that's kind of the, the landscape right now is one absolutely of fear and not just fear for, for the women themselves who may need these abortions, fear for providers who are the ones who are most commonly being criminalized under these laws. And so, for instance, right, providers, a lot of them are risk adverse, especially if they're working with larger healthcare organizations. What that means is if there's an ambiguity in the law or they are uncertain what their responsibilities are or they're you know, what they're allowed to do, they will err on the side of caution and not provide those abortion services. And there have been stories and and true stories where women have had to be turned away from hospitals or medical providers and told, go sit in your car in in the parking lot and wait there for five hours until this becomes a life-threatening emergency so that we can deal with it under the current law. We've also seen... States like Texas that have taken this even a step further. And they're saying, well, this is great. You know, we've got all these stringent abortion protections in place, but now we're going to give kind of bounty hunter rights, you know? So if, you know, you suspect somebody of having an abortion rate or, you know, you suspect that somebody has aided and abetted an abortion, you can now go after them or file a lawsuit against them. Um, And so we've got kind of that extra layer in some of these states. Now, that's kind of the the very negative side. Um, The positive side that we've started to see come into play are states that are doing the exact opposite, where they're saying, we want to make a reproductive health haven for our state. What that means is they're passing what's known as abortion shield laws. And those laws are giving protection to healthcare providers who are providing legal abortion services in their states um, and kind of safeguarding them against other states coming in and trying to attack them, right? Or say, oh, you gave abortion services to a person from my state who traveled to your state, that type of stuff. Um, The most recent that was just passed was New York. They passed um, a telemedicine abortion law. I believe there's going to be a ton of legal challenges to it um, and and constitutional challenges, but they're trying to expand access to abortion by allowing their healthcare providers to teleprescribe abortion medicine to patients who may be in abortion-restricted states. So we're starting to see kind of... um, it's going to be interesting, right? Because we're starting to see states extending their reach um, either negatively or positively into other states. And I think we're going to have a very messy legal landscape as we go forward. And this tries to sort itself out. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know um, I'm here in Wisconsin and Minnesota
0: is a, is a safe yeah. state as well. And so there's been a lot of talk about like, well, what happens if I go to Minnesota? Is the, is yeah. the Minnesota provider going to be punished? Am I going to be punished? And so that's why I, I absolutely thank you for doing this episode because these are questions that I just don't have answers to. And it's I feel like, you know, whether whatever side of the spectrum you're on when it comes to this kind of debate, um it it you you have to know your rights regardless. You have absolutely. to know your rights, what applies to you. So
1: this, well, whether you're this, a provider or or somebody who might need these services, you absolutely need to know not only like right- your rights, but what's your potential risk and liability? Because here's the thing, right? Yes. A law could be legal and how it's protecting you doesn't mean somebody's not going to come in and challenge it. Um, exactly. Especially with things right like New York's law, uh, you know, that's most likely going to be challenged, and it's almost mm-hmm. certainly going to be challenged in an abortion restricted state that's not going to be favorable to that law. So the yep. physicians who come in and are working right under that law, you know, specifically in the first couple of months they're going to be the ones most at risk. Um, and oh, so so it's interesting, because you not only have to know your rights, but you then have to weigh the risk of even if I'm right, even if this is legal, I can still get ex- sued.
0: Exactly, exactly. What does the overturn mean for women's data privacy, such
1: as the period ovulation and pregnancy tracker apps? This has been a huge one. So when Dobbs came into effect last year, you probably saw all of the articles that flooded the internet that were like, delete your period tracking app, right? Law enforcement's Mm -hmm. gonna get your data off your period tracking app and they're gonna come after you. So that has had a negative impact on Femtech, which obviously most of the products out there are things like apps and wearables right now that are collecting user data. So there's been a huge environment of fear where women are now not only afraid to use those applications, but if they are using the applications, they may be flooding them with incorrect data Uh, There have been stories about men now using the apps and just flooding them with data that's incorrect to try and throw law enforcement off the trails. So that's kind of the, when we step back and look at it, the environment in which women are operating. I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first is I worry about Femtech because of this data privacy environment uh, on several grounds, right? The first is, as I mentioned, a lot of these period tracking, ovulation apps, et cetera, were able to come onto the market without a lot of regulatory scrutiny, not only by the FDA, but also for HIPAA. Um, Most people understand HIPAA, right? It's your Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And you've probably come into contact with it when you go to your healthcare provider and they say, great, here's our HIPAA notice of privacy practices. Here's how we're protecting your data. There's a huge misconception that the HIPAA privacy protections that apply when you're in your physician's office also apply to the data that you're entering into your apps. I will tell you, most of the FemTech apps that are out there today are not governed by HIPAA. They, HIPAA does not apply um, to, to that type of scenario most often. It only applies to what's called covered entities or business associates. That's things like your healthcare provider who's billing insurance, right? A healthcare clearinghouse or a healthcare plan. It means that you could give the exact same reproductive health data to your provider and it's covered by HIPAA and to your Femtech app and it's not covered by HIPAA. Same exact data. Wow. So I want to clear up kind of that misconception out there because know, sometimes we think that our data is being held more securely than it is. And okay. given that, you know what what is protecting your data in these femtech apps? Well, right. you have the Federal Trade Commission. They're they're overseeing unfair and deceptive acts and practices against consumers. What that basically means, and you've probably seen Flow and Pre Mom in the news lately for some FTC investigations and settlements. It means yeah. that those privacy policies that nobody reads have to be transparent, accurate, um, and truthful and honest for consumers. So if a company, your Femtech app tells you they're not going to use your data one way, and then they do, right, they can get in trouble for that. Um, And then we have some state privacy laws that are coming into effect. But that's kind of it. So as long as your app is telling you how they're going to use your data, if they say, hey, I'm going to sell it downstream to data brokers, and you're like, cool, signed off on that privacy policy, they can do that. Um, So I want to, you know, I think since the Dobbs decision, we've had women now coming in and paying more attention to how their data can be disclosed through these apps, For but sure. paying attention before. And so a lot of the apps that are on the market have lax privacy and security policies and protections. So we're starting to see a shift now in some of these applications wanting to protect consumers. We have companies like Flow who are coming on the market and saying, hey, we have an anonymous mode. Um, as, a, as a data privacy attorney over here, I question, you know, and I, and I will put some caution around, what does anonymous mean? There's no universal definition or standards around anonymous. So how is that company defining anonymous? And I would caution you, um, if something says anonymous, know that there is probably a way it can be linked back to you unless you are familiar with the technology that the company's using to make it anonymous. So um, just kind of a disclaimer there. The other thing that we're seeing with data privacy, um, so, so more consumers are getting aware, right? More companies are coming in strengthening their privacy practices. That is so great. There's still a fear Um, and mistrust environment that's there and here's how that can have a negative impact so I mentioned you know people coming on the you know on these apps and flooding them with inaccurate data or women who might input correct data for some aspects and say oh you know what I don't want to give you my basal body temperature right or my um, cervical mucus you know all of that type of stuff I don't I don't want to you know do that And so you know so they might fudge some data for those aspects What's happening, though, is remember I said that we've got a huge dearth of data for women's health. So some of these tech companies are actually partnering with clinical researchers um, and research organizations and allowing them to access the women's health data from their apps, so that they can make long-term predictions and insights about women's health. Well, if we're flooding those applications with incorrect data um, and data that's not truthful, that is going downstream now to impact clinical researchers and the insights that we can get. So that's kind of thing two. Thing three that I worry about with data privacy is because there's this environment of mistrust, women who are In geographical areas where reproductive health care is restricted, um, and unfortunately that means certain racial and ethnic minority groups are going to be disproportionately impacted, they are now the ones who are going to be less likely and less willing to use femtech apps. So it doesn't mean that that people have all stopped using femtech apps. What it means is we're not getting a diverse, inclusive group of data now on which these algorithms can be trained. And so that's going to impact the algorithm's ability to create correct predictions for other women um, in those ethnic and minority groups once they're more comfortable using the apps again. So that's kind of the the very squishy and sticky data privacy landscape right now. And that makes so much sense. It makes so much sense when you stop and put it into,
0: into that perspective. As Like, I never stopped to think about, you know, people inputting, you know, the wrong information into these apps or people, you know... Of of different minority backgrounds not using these apps, so then we're not able to get like the full scope of everything. I I never really realized just how impactful those kinds of, just what we would think of our small details, yeah. to to these giant. That th- I mean, this impacts our our futures in in the medical industry. So it's.
1: Oh, that's it that's what it is too, right? If if we as consumers aren't demanding that our femtech apps adhere to stringent privacy and security standards, this industry is gonna continue to lose trust. And to be honest, it it may die out. Um, And that can have an even worse impact on getting women's health innovation to the market. So we have to find a way in which to support and encourage innovation in the femtech industry while demanding that our privacy and security rights are going to be upheld. One thousand percent.
0: Let's see. One last question on the on the overturn. Isn't it dangerous to leave abortion access up to individual states as opposed to having like an umbrella concept?
1: Yes. Um, And and we've started to see that. So whenever the Dobbs decision came out, right, it said, we're going to put abortion access back into the hands of your elected representatives, meaning each state can decide, you know, what it wants its abortion policies and procedures to be. And, you know, so that's kind of been the understanding of how this would play out, you know, it would be a state by state level. Um, That's happened. But what has also happened is overreach. So we have now started to see lawsuits. Um, there were, you know, there's a lawsuit in Texas that's already gone up uh, on appeal. That's basically saying, oh, no, we're going to challenge the FDA's approval of Mifepristone because we think right after all of these years that it's an unsafe drug. Okay, well, FDA clinical research has shown that it's more effective and safe than Tylenol, yet that's what they're going after. Not only that, right, but these litigants cherry picked a one-judge court um, that was going to be very conservative and very sympathetic to their cause, got the exact ruling that they wanted. Oh, hey, okay, maybe that ruling was in Texas, but now because we're challenging the FDA's approval of a drug, it applies nationwide. So that can be very difficult and very challenging because this was supposed to be left up to the elected representatives. Now you've got you know, a judge making one policy decision that could impact a drug's approval across the board. Um, you have kind of forum shopping for these types of cases and you have policies and laws that are gonna be contradictory, right? So you might have that one judge saying, no, right, Miffy Priston shouldn't have been approved. And you can have another judge that's saying, you know what? let's keep access from miffy Priston the exact same as it is right now. Well, now we have two conflicting rulings. How do we comply with both? It also is difficult for providers who operate in multiple jurisdictions and states to keep track of, okay, well, what is this state's law? What is this state's law? Where are we at here? How do I comply with all of the different laws? The thing that also gets a bit tricky is now we've got telemedicine. So how do you also make sure that patients, because this, this can expose providers to liability, that patients yeah. are where they say they are? A lot of people don't know, but whenever we talk about telemedicine, The law of the state where the patient is, that's the law that applies, not where the clinician is. So let's say that you're a patient in Texas um, and you, you know, Texas is restricted and you want to get telemedicine abortion from California. As the laws currently stand, right, you would not be able to get a California provider to prescribe you medication in Texas unless that provider is also licensed in Texas, in which case they're already subject to the Texas limitations anyway. What we've started to see from that angle for people who are trying to get around this is they might stay in Texas and they might set up a virtual address in California. And so whenever they go on the provider's website, right, and they say, yes, I'm located in California, right, here's my address, ship my pills here to this California address, it's not a real address, but that gets forwarded then to their Texas address. Um, So we're starting to see potential risks, right? For providers, like how do you ensure patients are where they say they are? Patients need access to this, right? So that's something that they are increasingly turning to. And because of that kind of patchwork framework that we have, we're also seeing patients turning to international organizations. What I mean there is, there are companies like Aid Access um, and others that work out of Europe. And it's completely illegal, right, for them to come and prescribe in the U.S. and ship pills here. But the thing is, the chance of them getting caught, very slim. Um, And so they continue to operate that way, in which case, right, a patient from Texas could go online, right, work with this international organization and have pills sent into the U.S. That's problematic because whenever we think about the FDA's approval of these drugs, they're approving them you know, with specific compositions, right? Specific pharmacies, manufacturers. And so typically the pills that are coming from overseas are usually from places like India that may not have been vetted through the FDA. And so you have the potential risk there, right? That because people need access and this is the only way to get it, that they're getting pills that may be unsafe. Um, So that's another consequence we've seen from this type of piecemeal framework.
0: For sure. Oh, that's, that's scary. That is very scary to think about.
1: STEM innovation, what exactly is it and how did it come to be? Yeah, so Fem Innovation just launched earlier this month. Um, so we right now are in our kind of our phase one launch. Our phase one launch focuses on a couple of aspects. First, we provide legal and business strategic advice to founders, especially early and mid-stage founders, because they're the ones who often get left out because they can't afford the high legal fees of larger firms. So we're trying to, to help them out, get their products to life faster. Um, our other aspect that we're working on is, and a lot of people don't know this either, but there's actually a gap between tech founders and clinicians. So a lot of people here, write Thumb Tech, and they say, great, I'm getting products that are made by OBGYNs, right, or, or vetted by OBGYNs or other physicians, Most of the time, that is not the case. There is nothing that says, right, that you couldn't come and say, hey, I'm going to put together a period tracking app or an ovulation app, and I'm going to do it without any type of medical insight or oversight. So nothing that says you can't do that. Um, If we look at the accuracy statistics of some of the femtech products on the market today, they're kind of scary. Um, you know, when I, we think about period tracking and ovulation tracking apps, one study looked at about, you know, 95 to 100 of those apps, and they found that the none of them could accurately predict your fertile window, and the best accuracy rating was 21%. So because of that, we're really working to get more clinicians involved in the femtech industry because clinicians want to be involved. Some of them, right, like you and like like your audience um, who may not be familiar with femtech, don't even know it exists, but they want to be involved. So we're working um, kind of in our phase one as well on getting more information out to clinicians and getting them educated on this industry. What I'm really excited about, though, is our phase two and our phase three launch. So our phase two launch, um, hopefully in early 24, will be a comprehensive platform where founders, investors, clinicians can come and get access to all of the resources that they need. So if you're a founder, for instance, you could come and learn how to build your company from scratch, right? Get access, know which vendors are gonna be reputable for you. And our phase three launch is really going to be more consumer and patient focused, because as you mentioned, right, there's so much misinformation out there. It's so hard to sift through everything on your own. And so many women go through gaslighting whenever they do go to their providers. So we're going to be building a comprehensive consumer-oriented platform or application where consumers could come and say, hey, I'm having a problem with endometriosis. Let me get actual medical relevant um, and correct information on that. Let me talk, you know, have a network, talk to people where I'm not going to feel shame or stigma or taboo around my diagnosis. Um, And then also, oh, I wonder what femtech apps might be good for endometriosis. Oh, here's a list of the ones that are vetted, right? Or have some type of clinical backing or have good privacy policies. Because right now, if you're a consumer out there trying to understand femtech and say, "I, I want something for endometriosis, or I want something for period tracking, which ones are good? You have no way to tell. Um, right. so that's really what we want to help consumers feel more confident in this industry and steer them towards products that have medical backing and high privacy standards.
0: Much appreciated. So much appreciated because I can't tell you how many times I've gone to my own apps and wondered like, How accurate is this? Is this like, and I've even gone to my doctors and they've said, no, 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 honey, like this isn't like, don't, don't rely on this. Don't rely on this one. Maybe try this one or maybe just try sticking to a calendar. So I, I, I love that for us. And I love that you are going so hard for us and trying to make this a, a much easier, much easier time for us to take control of our own health back. Now, quick, before we run out of time, um, I just want to brag on you a little bit to show our audience, you know, like, hey, she knows her stuff, obviously, in case you couldn't tell. But you've been featured in some big spaces, such as Vice, Forbes, Fortune, Cosmo, Teen Vogue, BuzzFeed, all, all the big names. How does this type of recognition empower and push forward the women's health movement? And what do you see for the future of women's healthcare?
1: Fantastic questions. You know, it's so funny. I kind of got lucky um, in terms of the the recognition that I did get and, and the platforms that I was able to put my voice on. And for me, it was all about empowering other women um, and making sure that they could understand you know, what their rights were or how they should approach this, um, rather than trying to cultivate an environment of fear. And so I, I really saw that as an opportunity to reach the millions of women who are out there and say, here's what you should be thinking about, right? Here's how your privacy is or isn't protected. Um, and so that was, that was just kind of a great platform to not only reach those women, but also lend credibility um, for those who want to, you know, learn more or get involved with Innovation um, That's been been very helpful. In terms of the future of women's health, um, I try to be really optimistic about it. I know there's so much going on right now. It's, it's a heartache. It's heavy. Um, but I, I think the more that we as women band together and put our money right in our interest into femtech um, and women's health innovation, the more gains um, and revolutionary products we're going to see come to life that are going to make huge impacts on where we're going and on our future health. So I think right now it's very challenging, but I do think, you know, the power of each woman's voice and making sure that they're being heard and not taking, you know, no for an answer from your provider's office. If you feel that you're not being heard, learning how to advocate for yourself um, and and really kind of transforming this idea that women's health is niche. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, femtech is niche, right? Um, That's going to go away in five years. We're more than 50% of the population. We're not going away. and okay. so, I, it's time for us to really embrace our power there, um, yeah. and, and really embrace the fact that we make eighty percent of healthcare decisions. That is powerful, not only from you know our ability to access healthcare services, but from our ability to drive where we want healthcare to go in the future. And if yeah. each woman could recognize their own power in that, think of how much data solutions, et cetera, we would have in women's healthcare today that's where I would love to see it go. You know, in 20 years from now, what I would like to see is for femtech to honestly not even be a thing because I want women's health to be part of human health. And so the sooner we get there without having the separate category, that's where I want us to be. I think we can get there. We just have to push harder and faster than we have before to make sure that our rights don't get curtailed. And for anyone who wants to get involved with fem innovation, um, please reach out because we need, you know, consumers, we need people who are interested. We want to build these platforms so that they're user-friendly and, and work for you. And to do that, we need your help and your input. So help us, help us get there. For sure. And where can my audience reach out to you and find more of your work and, and interact some more? Absolutely. So my personal website is bethanycorbin.com. Our fem innovation website is feminnovation.com. I am also very active on LinkedIn. So I'm on linkedin.com slash in slash Bethany Corbin. I am a new grandma on Instagram. Like that's how I feel, even though I'm not really a grandma, but I I feel like one. So I have an Instagram where I'm starting to kind of push out some content for consumers. So you can find me there at Lawyer. Perfect. Awesome. For anybody who didn't catch all of that,
0: as you know, I will put all of those in the description box below. So no fears. Thank you so much, Bethany, for joining us today and for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. I can't tell you how like relieved I am after having this conversation. I feel like women's health is just so daunting and it shouldn't be that way for women to, to have to think about our own health and our own decision-making in our healthcare and to be Panicked. So I appreciate you so much for having this conversation with us. And I know our unladies, our ladies, and even our gentlemen audience members are going to appreciate it as well. So, and for our audience members, as you guys know, as always, I love y'all fiercely.